you know, as Christians, we have to understand and, and be real with where we are. That's what we have to see first, individually. And what where our mindset is and what we desire. Eric the Addisons. I think what God is really calling us back to, it's those individual personal revivals in our own lives where we're like, oh Lord, what have we done? We have minimized you. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. As the church, man, we should be on the forefront yes. of making disciples, of indoctrination and godly things. If we don't train our kids, they will not be able to stand. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Erin Addison's. On American Family Radio, thank you so much for listening. I'm Miki. And I'm Will. And Sherry B and J-Mac are on tap to help us navigate the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we appreciate you listening. Um, I don't know that we have any announcements. I was very tempted to, like yesterday, just kind of jump into uh, into content, which, by the way, I kind of I'm, I'm interested today in um, just kind of having a little bit of a back and forth. Mm-hmm. But I kind of want to set it up in this first segment and then talk about the responsibility of the Christian um, with the handling of God's word in every generation. And I know people are like, how's that different? from what you always talk about. It's really actually not much (laughs) different, um, but I do have a slightly different angle. You Mm -hmm. can appreciate that. All right. um, Do we have any any announcements or any any updates? No, I'm just looking forward to the Marriage Family Life Conference. Uh, So if you're registered, I'll see you there, (laughs) July 7th to the 9th. Uh, This is going to be an awesome time. We are making the final preparations. It's uh, exciting, man. So uh, um, I hope to see you there, and uh, this is going to be a good time uh, in the Lord. So. So I was I was I was working on um, I was working on some things a few days ago and about three days ago and I was doing a little bit of research and I came across this quote Mm -hmm. and I thought, wow, this is really a profound quote. And so I've been thinking about it for the last three days. And I I thought today, just based on what we're talking about and, and certainly the content of the program yesterday, we talked about. Um, we talked about propaganda in various yeah. places and how, you know, just cropping up where we least expected. Yeah. And, and I think probably the most troubling would be among Christians. Right. But this quote came back to my mind. And as you and I were talking this morning, I thought, wow, you know, it may be time to kind of like, let's have a conversation around this. And so this is the quote. This quote is from uh, the late Bruce Shelley. And Bruce Shelley is the author of the uh, church history book, uh, church history in plain language mm-hmm. is the name of the book. People who have listened to the program for a long time know how much I cherish the history of the church and what God has revealed um, to us through the steadfastness of the believer, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, contending for the faith. Um, and, and so many of us, I, I just want to say this just as an en- encouragement. Um, so many of us are a part of, of the promise that the Lord Jesus made when he said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Mm -hmm. And we don't even realize that. But when we stand boldly on the truth of God's word, we are actually a part of that promise. Like when we are telling the truth about who Jesus is and about what it is to live as a Christian, we are a part of not allowing the gates of hell to prevail against the church. We are a part of that. And in fact, you know, when you, when you think about it, um, well, and, and I, I want to be very careful with the way I, I speak in terms of Jesus, because, of course, he knew. Of, of course, the Lord knows um, how we comprise his plan, right? How we are a part of his plan. We are a part of his plan of evangelism, right? This mm-hmm. uh, the being sent out and that the kingdom of God grows. Um, it anticipates 
and for lack of a better word, excuse this word, but banks on the active lives of the believer, right? So even when you have this promise of the Lord saying that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, part, we are a part of that promise when we are steadfast yeah. and when we are faithful to the word of God. So here is um, here is the quote from... Um, from Bruce Shelley, and and I'm going to read it twice, and then I'll read it when I get to the to the end of my. Uh, hopefully, I can get this all in the first segment, um, the end of my presentation, because we're going to take a trip down memory lane. <laughs> but here is the quote: "Those who live, those who live most devoutly for the world to come, are often in the best position to change the present." Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Again, here oh, we go. Okay. okay, right? You can see. So I've yeah. been stewing on this, like stewing over this for like three days, thinking about this back and forth, just batting it around in my mind. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, like that, that is so profound a thought, right? Like it is, it is such a profound thought. So let me, let me share that again. Those who live most devoutly for the world to come mm -hmm. are often in the best position to change the present. Mm. So in some context here, and that's what I want to do just a little bit. So, by the way, the title of the show today is The Cutting Edge of Scripture as a double meaning, the cutting edge of Scripture, right? Yeah. Like, okay, right, the sword of the spirit, mm -hmm, the word mm -hmm. of God. Yeah. But at the same time, um, our application of Scripture and our strong conviction of its efficacy, mm. okay, as Christians, always puts us ahead of those who are languishing in darkness. Amen. Think about this. Now, let's let me let me make my case and then we'll go. This may be two segments. OK, but let me make my case here. Go ahead. Because if you think about what the gospel teaches us, the gospel teaches us of a separation from God because of sin. The gospel teaches us that there is a decline. There is a fallenness. There is a deterioration because of being separated from God. So destructive. So um. So chilling this separation, this eternal separation, right, that the God man has to reconcile us to the father. So Jesus Christ reconciles us to the father. Until this happens, we are dead, right? Mm. We are dead. Though we live, we are dead. If you think about it, in every society and in every culture all around the world, until the gospel infiltrates that culture, mm -hmm. that society, mm -hmm the stench of death is all over it. Yeah. So Christians, if you think about this and just kind of follow the line here, Christians in every society and every culture that they go into bringing the truth of the gospel, they are then on the cutting edge of what it is to be human because they have been reconnected to the, the one who defines human, mm -hmm. the one who has said what it is to be human. Let me give you an example. So an example of this would be the church, under early imperial rule, this would be the church and the early examples of hospitals where the Romans would have said that if, if somebody is sick and somebody is weak mm -hmm. and they are not beneficial to society, then we discard them. Mm. Where the Romans would have exposed their babies. Mm. Oh, smallest defect you don't want. It's called exposure. You just lay the baby out and let the baby die. Insert Christians. Yeah. 
the Christians are in this culture and in this society, and they are saying that actually, you know what, there's value and there's worth and there's dignity to these lives because they're made in the image of God. Their value and their worth doesn't come from what they might be or come what on. they might do or how they might contribute to society. Now, where mm. where are they getting this, right? They are getting this from the scriptures. And, and let me just say okay? the interesting thing, that the, the examples that you just used, we see that happening today in, yes. in America, you know, even today. You know, where the the Christian, we, we are saying that um, people are made in the image of God, you know, where, whereas the world is like, no, they're too old. We can do without Come them. Or, on. You know, we can abort the babies. And but the Christian steps in and like, no. You so know? this is a part of our history. Yeah. Like this is this, this is, is what DNA. we do. Yeah. And and it's it's in our DNA mm-hmm. um, and we're because we're reading the same scriptures. Right. Yeah. We are yes. we are adhering to the same yes. truth. So here's my point. My point is, as history looks back on some of the barbarism of the past, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. wherever the Christian was, the barbarism was greatly reduced. Mm. Okay. Okay. That's heavy. So this, Right. Okay. Think about it, right? Okay. So the society changed because it was now comprised of changed people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have a problem. In 21st century America, that we are, in many instances, trying to change culture by being like that culture. Mm, it won't work. It has never worked. Right. It has never in the history of the church worked. It has never worked. The only change that comes to culture, right, is through a changed believer. It is the 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 believer who is filled with the spirit of God living faithfully in any given culture, whatever the civilization is. Mm-hmm. And here's the amazing thing. The application of the gospel, the, the living of the gospel frees us from trying to make people live culturally like us. And here's what I mean when I say culturally. So when you think of when you think of missionaries who go into a foreign land, yeah. you're not trying to make those those cultures American. Mm. What you're trying to do is point them to Christ. So whatever parts of their culture that are not an affront to Christ or an affront to the gospel, they get to keep that. This would have been very consistent with early Mm. first century church teaching, Mm -hmm. right? They get to keep that. But those things that are sin, those things that are wickedness, those things that, that they can't keep, they have to put it, put this away. This is the Jerusalem council. These, these, yeah. are, this is, this is what we say on the matter, right? All right. So, but what happens? Here's the question. What happens when there is conflict among Christians? Mm, yeah. Okay. Tricky. So like yesterday mm-hmm. we were talking about an evangelist who wrote an article that was published by the Christian post. It was an op-ed, yeah. not an article. It was an op-ed that was published by the Christian post that talked about the things that he's proud of and that he's not proud of in the month of June. And as I unpacked that and share quite a bit of it with you, you know, I was very upset by it because I feel like this is coming from among the brethren. But I think what you increasingly will see is that from among the brethren, we will have people who will paint us as unloving, mm-hmm. uncaring mm-hmm. and unfit for society. But this is not new. And so I think sometimes our encouragement can come from understanding history and knowing that in the history of the church, we have seen 
the fight for um, the the authority of scripture in our midst. This is not something that has been um, a shock or a surprise or something that has been uncommon to the church. So let's go back. So mm-hmm. let's look at the reformers. Okay. So October 31st, 1517, you've got um, Martin Luther who uh, nails his 95 propositions um, for theological debate. That was his aim. Let's talk about these things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about where we're getting it wrong as a people. Um, but this was obviously, as most of us know, this is big on church history, right? So, so we, most of us know this, um, this was the beginning of the Protestant reformation. It has been said that the Protestant reformation answered four important questions differently from Roman Catholicism. And I want to list those questions because I think it's going to be important as we continue to unpack where we are and sort of the basis for all of our engagement. But I think it's also important to list these questions because when you see the rift or the divide that happened, even among the reformers, Mm. these four questions (laughs) are important again. And so you say, well, wait, go back to your reason for the reformation. Go back to your reason for the protest. Like, why were you speaking out? Okay, mm-hmm. so here were the four questions that uh, history says. This is what the Protestant Reformation asked um, and answered differently from Roman Catholicism. Number one, how is a person saved? Number two, where does religious authority lie? Where does religious authority lie? Number three, what is the church? What is the church? Okay, we're going we're gonna to take our time with this because this is, okay. And then number four, what is the essence of Christian living? What is the essence of Christian living? So the reformers were looking to God's word to answer these questions, while the Roman Catholics appeared to be looking to the authority of the Pope, mm-hmm. the church, mm-hmm. and widespread tradition. Yeah. Tradition across hundreds of years that in 1517, right? So you're looking at um, you're looking at from the time of Constantine's edict shortly thereafter until 1517. You're looking at a lot of church tradition that had really become a mixture of government and paganism because you were trying to win over those people who didn't want to turn from their pagan tradition but they also saw that now the christians were favored by the government by the state if you will and so they wanted to get in on that so what you had is over hundreds of years you had a polluted church Mm. this is not to say that there were not faithful men and women within this church structure but largely you had a very polluted sort of tradition There were all kinds of things that kind of like the selling of indulgences and things like that, that you could purchase your loved ones from purgatory, that you, with what you spent, you could save their souls. This is one example of what I'm talking about. But the Reformation called all of that into question. But what happens when there are questions among the Reformers? We'll be right back. Welcome 
Welcome back to Aaron the Addisons on American Family Radio. We really do appreciate you listening. I'm Miki. And I'm Will, and that's Crowder with Good God Almighty. It sounds like cry. <laughs> Sherry B and J Mac are on tap to help us navigate the show. Um, I'm going to try to get around to some calls in the third segment, so I'm going to move as expeditiously as I can, but just to make sure that we get all of the perns. It's New Orleans for points, Arts. all of the points that I'm trying to make. Uh, today's program, we're talking about the cutting edge of scripture, how when we apply the word of God, when we are confident in the efficacy of the word of God, that it produces the result that it promises, mm-hmm. um, then we are on the cutting edge. Like we we change cultures. That That is what God has set us up to do, to go into cultures with the truth of the gospel and to change those cultures. And interestingly enough, um, the change begins with us. So, all right. So I'm looking at um, the Protestant Reformation and I'm looking at the changes that happened even within the Protestant Reformation. And I found this really interesting. Um, So you've got 1517 uh, Wittenberg door, the 95 theses or the 95 propositions for theological debate posted by Martin Luther. Within eight years of that, there arose deeper questions about what it meant to be a Protestant, what it meant to be um, someone who relied on the authority of Scripture. And there were several groups that sort of arose during this time, but the largest and most notable coming right out of the Reformation were the Anabaptists. Okay, I want to talk about the Anabaptists here for just a second. This group did not call themselves Anabaptists. It actually was a pejorative term that was kind of thrown at them by Mm. those who dissented, those who said, so in other words, it meant the rebaptizers. So here's what happened. The Anabaptists believed, as Luther had said, that every Christian should be reading the Bible, that we should be living according to God's word and not man's tradition. So as the Anabaptists searched the scripture, they actually had a question. Where in scripture is the baptizing of infants? So because they couldn't find it in scripture, Mm -hmm. they then said, hold on a second. Baptizing infants just perpetuates Christendom. It's creating a kingdom of people who may or may not be actually actual Christians, right? So the Anabaptists said, no, we're not going to baptize infants, but here's what we will do. We will baptize those who confess Christ. Mm -hmm. When you confess, when you confess Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. You are regenerated. You are a confessing Christian Baptism is for you. Now, um, this did not go over too well, (laughs) because interestingly enough, the Lutherans, if you will, um, didn't have a problem with infant baptism. Mm -hmm. So what you actually have happening is you have a subgroup among a subgroup. So you've got the reformers who are saying, let's get back to scripture and the Anabaptists say, okay, great, let's do it. <laughs> but then you've got some of the reformers who say, no, no, stop, that's too far back. <laughs> they say, some of these things we can still keep, <laughs> right. right? So on the Lutheran side, they still had ordained clergy who considered the whole population where they were stationed mm-hmm. um, as members of their church. Wow. Okay, so it doesn't matter that you confess <laughs> Christ. It's I preside over this, this you know, district or whatever. That's and the question, what is the church? 
going back to the original <laughs> questions that the Reformation asked. Okay, yes. Yeah. Okay, you so you're with me. Okay, good. I just want to make sure that it's coherent. Okay, um, so. Additionally, the Lutheran Church was actually looking to the state for its salary and its support. Mm -hmm. So the Anabaptists had a problem with this because the Anabaptists said, well, how can you teach the truth, right, when the state has control over the church? Mm -hmm. There always has to be a tension (laughs) where the church is presided over by Christ. Amen. That we answer to the Lord and not to the state. Okay. Well, this didn't go over too well because not only did the Anabaptists say, we're going to baptize men and women who profess Christ, mm-hmm. but they said we're not going to baptize babies. Now, remember, this is just within eight years of the Protestant Reformation. So we're now 1525 here, okay? 1524, 1525, where the conversations are being had that there is a problem among the reformers. Guys, and I hope that you can see some of the parallels that, that, that I hopefully hopefully if I can do this eloquently enough, I can tie them together, right? So the Anabaptists Mm -hmm. said that as they searched the scriptures, they saw no no church-state alliance. So the infant baptism or the the baptism of babies was basically held over because of tradition, not because of anything that was in the word, but it was tradition. Exactly. So there were two schools of thought. So um, on the side of Martin Luther, so the Lutheran Mm -hmm. thought, I don't know that it would have been called the Lutheran thought at that time, but the thoughts of Martin Luther as he was still alive. um, The thoughts of Martin Luther were, if it's not prohibited in scripture, Mm -hmm. then we can do it. Mm -hmm. So if the Bible doesn't say not to do it, then probably it can stay. It's probably okay. But there was another man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. Mm-hmm. who actually had a different conviction. He said, unless the Bible prescribes it, then we don't do it. Mm-hmm. Unless, so Zwingli said, unless the Bible prescribes it, then we don't do it. So this kind of became sort of a little bit of a, of a conflict among the reformers, among the Protestant reformers, right? But now, and, and I don't want to misrepresent Zwingli because Zwingli was actually not an Anabaptist. There was another man uh, by the name of Manns. Manns was the last name. He actually became the first Anabaptist martyr. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Mm-hmm who said, hold on a second, even while you guys are basically saying that we're getting back to Scripture, you're not getting back to Scripture. Mm. You still have an allegiance to the state, if you will. You're still kind of walking in a little bit of fear, a little bit of trepidation there. You're not actually being loyal to Scripture, okay? (laughs) So the Anabaptists were concerned because when they searched the Scriptures, they saw that apostolic churches, churches that the apostles were setting up and overseeing, they're looking in Scripture— They saw that these churches were companies of committed believers, communities of men and women who had freely and personally chosen to follow Jesus Christ. And according to uh, Bruce Shelley, he says that this was a revolutionary idea in the 16th century, as, as you might imagine, right? Especially considering what they were coming out of. So the Anabaptists wanted to return to the true church, the pure church. They wanted to return to the church where the word of God was authoritative and the way men lived and operated as professing Christians Mm -hmm. was consistent with the word of God. Now, this is where it gets really dark. Okay, so by 1525, um, the Anabaptists were living in Zurich or Zurich, Switzerland, Zurich, Switzerland, and the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were given um, a directive from, quote unquote, the church 
that also served as like the government <laughs> that also served as sort of like the punitive authority. So the Anabaptists were told that they were to stop baptizing men and that their babies were to be baptized by at least the eighth day <laughs> or they were going to be jailed. <laughs> wow. So the leaders of the Anabaptist movement, they were like, they got together, they prayed, they searched the scriptures Again, is there any place that we can find this where we can say we can do it? And they found no place, right? They found no place where the church should be tied to the state. They found only a distinction, only a tension that existed in the scriptures. And the Anabaptists said, we can't do it. We can't. We're not going to baptize babies, they said. And they said, we will baptize those who confess Christ. On March the 7th, 1526, the authorities decided that Christians being baptized as adults and refusing to baptize infants was worthy of death. Mm. Christians. Persecuting <laughs> other Christians. Man. And why? Because they are trying to stick to the scriptures. Guys, I, this is our history, guys. This is our history. And, and I hope, I know that this sounds really dark to be comforting, but I think you can understand what I'm saying here, right? So the Anabaptists would be in, in Zurich would be um, martyred by drowning. Wow. wow. The authorities said, if you guys want to be rebaptized, fine, go ahead and be rebaptized. And so the first person uh, in 1527 was Felix Manns, who became the first Anabaptist martyr. He was drowned in the Limont River that flows through Zurich because he believed that the word of God was authoritative. And he endeavored to live his life according to that conviction. Wow. What happened after that is that the Anabaptists actually fled to Germany and Austria, but they didn't fare any better there. Uh, by 1529, Anabaptism was declared heresy and it was punishable by death. During the Reformation years, during the Reformation years, between four and 5,000 Anabaptists were executed either by fire, water, or sword. Mm, how many? Four to five thousand. Wow. Between four to five thousand Anabaptists were martyred because they believed the word of God to be authoritative and they endeavored to live according to that conviction. Now, today we look at that and there are even some who are listening are like, well, those are the forerunners of the Baptists. Yeah. And you're right about that. You're absolutely <laughs> right about that. But you know what? Their endeavoring to live according to scripture made them the outliers. Mm. Wow. Even yeah. among people who were saying, hey, we're living according yep. to the scriptures. Yep. <laughs> now let's go back to where we started. Bruce Shelley's, the late Bruce Shelley's quote here. Those who live most devoutly for the world to come are often in the best position to change the present. So here's what I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about the immense pressure that is on the faithful church yeah. today. And I've been thinking about the immense pressure that exists among believers who are reading the same Bible and they're saying we are Bible believing Christians. Some of them they're saying where well, our scriptures say this. And, and I'm thinking about the persecution that we are facing but at the same time, I'm comforted by the fact that those of us 
who endeavor to apply the word of God faithfully. Those of us who do this, we are on the cutting edge, if you will, of society. Mm. Why? Because the gospel seeks to reorder man, to reorient man back to God. And when man is reoriented back to God, he lives the way God intended him to live, which means that you erase the barbarism. You erase the confusion. You erase the distortion. You erase the disdain for authority. All of these things that characterize our culture today. So now, let me just drive my point home. I don't know when the Lord is returning, but based on the signs that Jesus wanted us to know, I believe it is soon. However, should time go on, And our children and their children, maybe even their children's children, live in society, live in culture. I really believe that there will be people who will say, wait a minute. They once said that men could be women Hmm. (laughs) and that was widely accepted. Like, I think Hmm. I think there will be another lurch should time go on where you see a society that is like, I cannot. They will read some of our posts. They will (laughs) read some of our papers. They will read some of our arguments and they will say, wait a minute. There really existed people. Wait, but I thought, but I thought they had science and I thought they had biology. How in the world are they? And then, okay, but, and then, and there will be some people who will say, but even if you didn't have all of that, what about among the Christians? How in the world did Mm. they allow for that to proliferate? Wow. They had the word of God. And you know what? History will tell of this small group of Christians who applied the word of God, even as they were persecuted. History will tell their story, just like history tells the Anabaptist story, right? That the persecution that they suffered and the suffering that they endured because they believed the word of God to be Mm. true, Mm -hmm. put them on the cutting edge of history. They were a people if you will, ahead of their time and yet not, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. They were a people, as the Hebrew writer describes, um, as the world is unworthy of them. Mm. I think what happens, though, is that before we can get to that point, so many of us just give up. We determine it's not worth being ostracized. We determine, I don't want to go for a swim in the Limont River. (laughs) We determine, you know what, it's not worth my life for that. And that's why we see all a lot of the compromise that we see in the professing church when it comes to a lot of these issues that we're talking about. Yes. It's because of that mindset or that, that, you know, attitude that I'm not willing. And so when you're not willing, you, you, you are willing to do whatever you have to do to preserve yourself. Yes. Yes. And, and I, I, I would say that that falls in the category of being one of the lapses. I really do. I, I know we try to be very soft, you know, with people who who struggle, who are afraid to upset people. But I think we've got to tell the truth because history records the truth. History actually records those Christians who um, ran down to to pinch incense to Caesar. Like history actually records this. They actually have a name. They're called the lapses like they are the ones who lapsed in their faith. And I think for us as Christians today, one of the things that we've got to do is stop expecting um, 
to be liked. And this is very difficult, right? Because you would imagine that among the reformers, it's like, hey, we all believe in scripture around here. <laughs> so you're like, why? why? Wait, put me down. Put me down as they throw you into the river. But these people, these Anabaptists, they believe that the truth of scripture was worth dying for. Mm. I want to share with you a quote um, from one Anabaptist who was kept alive long enough just to give birth to her daughter. And then she was executed. Wow. She actually wrote a letter to her daughter and we have it recorded in church history. I'll share it with you when we get back. That one could run just a little bit longer. That's one of my favorites. I just have to say, just guys, personal confession right there. Just that's one of my favorites. Welcome back to Aaron the Addisons on American Family Radio. I'm Miki. And I'm Will, and that's Path of Revelation with Believers. Oh, man, it's a declaration. It yes. is a, it's a declaration, and that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. Um, anyway, just really drawn to boldness, and, and we can't have too much of that in the time that, that we're living in. Um, all right. So so we're talking about the cutting edge of scripture, how scripture puts us on the cutting edge of any culture, any society. Um, you, you read church history and you look at all that the Lord used the church to do um, to show man how he was meant to live. That's I mean, that's that's what the gospel does. The gospel shows man how he was meant to live. It reconciles us back to God. It shows us our purpose, shows us how we're supposed to function. And that order society, indeed, the gospel as um Oh, goodness, I have the book right here. Uh, James Garlow entitled his book, How God Saves Civilization. It's a church history book, but what, what an appropriate title for the book, How God Saves mm. Civilization. The gospel saves civilization mm. Amen. from from its own self-destruction, yeah. Yeah. by the way. So you guys are a part of that, right? You guys all are a part of the history of the church, and we must be faithful. Um, before we went to the break, I promised to read just a little bit. I want to read from um, Church History in Plain Language, uh, written by the late Bruce Shelley. Mm. And um, and we're talking about the Anabaptists and then we'll open the phone lines, which we can start getting calls queued up right now. Uh, if you want to join in on the conversation, um, 888-589-8840, 888-589-8840. Sherry B. will get you queued up and uh, you can give your your commentary on what we're talking about today. Uh, here we go. Um, church history in plain language. The age of the Reformation is a section I'm reading from here to us. The Anabaptists seem to have made a simple demand, a person's right to his own beliefs. But in the 16th century, the heretics seemed to be destroying the very fabric of society. That is why the voice of conscience was so often silenced by martyrdom. We hear that voice in a moving letter written by a young mother in 1573 to her daughter, only a few days old. Mm -hmm. The father had already been executed as an Anabaptist. The mother in an Antwerp jail had been reprieved only long enough to give birth to her child. She writes to urge her daughter not to grow up ashamed of her parents. Mm. Now listen to this. My dearest child, the true love of God strengthen you in virtue. You who are yet so young and whom I must leave in this wicked, evil, perverse world. Oh, that it had pleased the Lord that I might have brought you up. But it seems that it is not the Lord's will. Mm. Be not ashamed of us. It is the way which the prophets and the apostles went. Oh, man. Mm. Like, 
Okay, I'll just continue. <laughs> All right. Your dear father demonstrated with his blood that it is the genuine faith. And I also hope to attest the same with my blood. Though flesh and blood must remain on the posts and on the stake, well knowing that we shall meet hereafter. So they don't like us sometimes, right? Not, not many of us are going to be put up on a stake. Not many of us are going to be burned alive. Not many of us are going to be drowned. Um, we will face some discomfort. The Bible says that all of us who desire to live godliness uh, in this life, we will suffer persecution. Um, my strong conviction is that we should not be tepid in that. We should really embrace that, that we are going to suffer. People are not going to like us. The apostle Peter wrote that Jesus suffered, leaving us an example. How we should suffer of all the things that Jesus could have done. He did not do when being reviled. He did not revile in return, right? He entrusted himself to the Lord God. So I would say this, I would say that as we look at what's going on, uh, in the culture. And as we look at what's being like, we're being pressed upon, we are being called um, crazy. We we are being called, you know, listen, I was I was talking to our son, 888-589-8840. We'll go to the phone lines here in just a, in just a minute. I was talking to our son, um, maybe about three weekends ago. And he had gone out to to take the garbage out. One of his chores, gone out to take the garbage out. And he had a friend that was for a short time, living in um, in our state of Mississippi, and he was going back to his state. And this had bothered him for months. He knew that this friend was going back to his state, and he was, he was really uh, grieved over the state of his soul. And he would talk to me, and he would share with me that he was just intimidated to talk to him. He said, you know, I... I just he feels like he's very hostile to the truth. I try to bring it up and he just kind of always gets out from from under the conversation. By the way, if you guys haven't listened um, and heard J.D. on talking with us, J.D. is 12. And this particular night he was out taking the trash out and his the friend that he was concerned about the state of his soul and another friend walked up. And he said his heart started to race. And he was like, man, this is my this is my chance, you know, because he's going to be leaving this state. And I don't know what's going to happen to him after he leaves. And he starts sharing with him the, the gospel. And, and, and this kid who is older than he is, he's a teenager. So he's older than J.D. He's giving J.D. all of these like, ah, if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm. And, and J.D. is just he is just way. <laughs> I, I can't make this a verb. But J.D. is way of the mastering him. That's what he's he's, he's doing. <laughs> he's doing he's he's Ray comforting him. OK. And um, and I and I mean that in a very literal sense. You know, we, we actually purchased some gospel tracks from Living Waters. And so he had them. He came in, he got them, he gave them to him. And he's he's dealing with all of the objections um, according to how he's been trained and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, and he really gave glory to God. He felt like the Lord gave him the boldness that he needed to do that. But one of the things, and the reason I bring that up, one of the things that he said, he said that as he was asking this teenager about where he would spend eternity and if his soul mattered to him, he said that this, this kid said to him, you're weird. <laughs> and he said, I was like, that's okay. You know? And I said, how did that really make you feel? And he said, you know, I felt like it was just a deflection. <laughs> he said, I felt like he was just uncomfortable because I was just pressing him a little bit. And I thought, man, you know, guys, we can face the discomfort mm -hmm. in culture, right? 
we are found pressing on people when we hold them to truth. When we say this is the word of God, God has already said who he is. He's already said who we are. Right. And people don't like that. And so sometimes we get pressed and, and you know, we don't want to be called weird. But I'm saying that to say, and this was such a conviction, you know, as we, Willie Great and I um, sat and listened to J.D. tell us what had happened. You know, I'm thinking, man, if, if my 12-year-old can be, um, can be called weird and still, um, still decide that Jesus is worthy, Amen. right? That, that somebody's soul matters. Amen. Then, you know, at 43, I can be called a hater, right? And still, and still tell the truth. Amen. All right, Willie Great, where do we go? All right, let's go to Steve in Texas. Hi, Steve. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I look forward to seeing you all at the NFL here coming up soon. Yes. My question is, uh, or it's kind of a comment. I just want to get your thoughts on it. So um, I kind of don't adhere to um, what's being taught predominantly since I think about the 1800s in the church through uh, John Nelson Darby, which is he's known as the father of the pre-trib rapture. And that has kind of become a hot-button issue, especially in the church where I uh, you know, I attend, I talk to people a lot that, uh, hey, you know, there's a Bible that continuously tells us that we're supposed to persevere and endure to the end, persevere until the end, until the final trumpet, until Jesus Christ returns. And you see the final trumpet coming after the other preceding six trumpets. And in cases, there's are tribulations and trials that the church is supposed to go through. And all the times in the churches that's mentioned in Revelation, it talks about basically repent. You know, you do these things, but if you repent, basically if you repent. But uh, he's asking us to persevere and endure. So my, my, my concern is that there's so many Christians out there right now, when I talk to them about this, and say, this is the view that I adhere to, is that they basically come back and say, well, you know, I just, I just pray that God raptures us out of here. I pray that we don't mm-hmm. go through that. And they're scared. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we're supposed to be bold in the crazy this time. Pray for a heart that doesn't melt. Pray for boldness. Pray for courage for your fellow mm-hmm. brothers and, and for yourself that you can persevere and endure. Because I do believe we're scared of God's wrath during those times. But that doesn't mean we're spared of the trials and tribulations and the martyrdom, all the things that are going to come um, when the de- demonic activity in- increases, especially these end times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Steve, thank you so much. I appreciate that comment. So mm-hmm. I do believe that the church is going to be raptured up. Now, I don't know. Well, I know of Darby. Right. But I don't believe that because I've been taught his writings. I believe that because of what I see in scripture. And I believe every time you look throughout, even in the old Testament, you see that the people of God are not appointed to the wrath of God. You see that as God pours out wrath, he actually spares his people. Now that does not mean that does not mean that there will not be persecution or even suffering. Suffering. But when you read revelation and you look at what the wrath of God is, what we call the tribulation as the apostle John saw, you see that there there's a specific group of people that come out of that, Mm -hmm. that John actually asks about who are they? They have come out of the tribulation. And so the question is, if all of the Christians are coming out of that, then why is John asking who they are? Why is John perplexed about that? It would seem that, well, everybody's coming out of this tribulation. Everybody's coming out of this. And I don't see that in Scripture. Again, in 1 Thessalonians, where the Apostle Paul mm-hmm. writes to the Thessalonican church, they are concerned that the rapture has happened. Remember, Paul was with them for a short time through persecution. He had to leave it to get out of Dodge. And so they have still some unanswered questions among those questions. OK, what's what's what is it going to be like? Has the day of the Lord already come? Have we missed it? Because there are some people who were troubling them. There's some people who were troubling them. 
And so this is what the Apostle Paul writes to them. And um, this is First Thessalonians chapter five. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then Mm -hmm. sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brother, for that day. I'm sorry, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Okay, So here we have this picture of a sudden judgment happening on the world, but we are not going to be surprised by that. This Mm. is, and so there is not this sense of foreboding for us. And I, and if you can bear with me for a second here, brother, what I would like to say is that I think there's a big difference in people looking forward to the hope of being with Jesus Christ versus those who are just trying to escape this world. Right. Right. Do you understand what I'm saying? That that is not the hope or the thrust behind the scriptures at all, because Jesus actually says that we're supposed to occupy until he returns. So I'll just continue. He says in verse four, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Um, Let me see. And then I I wanted to jump down. And I may not be exactly where I need to be. Okay. All right. Let me just let me just continue here. For God has not destined us for wrath. So so what's what's the implication? I'll back up here for a second. All right. Verse eight. But since we belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Yeah. Now, imagine the verse. Imagine the number nine is not there because sometimes we just take it in verse pieces. Right. And then we think that there is a different thought or that something is kind of broken up here. But let me go back to verse eight and I'm going to read verse eight and verse nine together. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So let me, let me say this. It would be, it would be difficult mm-hmm. now again, and and I don't want to make this the basis of the conviction. It would be difficult to encourage people by saying, "Just hold on, we're going to we're getting ready. It's not gonna it's not going to be long before we go to that go through that wrath. Just hold on, <laughs> we we're on our way toward God's wrath. Just hold on, be encouraged, okay? Man. The encouragement <laughs> is that we are spared from God's wrath, but mm. this should not produce escapism, right? This should not produce the type of lazy, apathetic Christianity that we see. This should produce a type of endurance where we're like, yeah. I can stand I, because yeah. go ahead. Will the great. And I'm I was sorry. Saying, go I ahead. think that's that was the caller's concern. Yeah. You know, that was being produced uh, is an escapism, you know, where the Bible does not teach us that, you know, and that we we have a hope. We're looking towards the hope of glory like we're looking towards the you know, Jesus coming back. But I think sometimes people have operated in fear because of, you know, 
just wanted to get out of here. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be here when I have, you know, just like those type of things and not pressing in and persevering. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would say this. I think there is supposed to be the right comfort of the believer in the security of what Jesus Christ did, that we are not appointed unto wrath. Mm-hmm. Please understand that when we talk about the tribulation, the great tribulation, we are talking about the wrath of God poured out on man, mankind for his rejection of God. His rejection right. of God. That's not us. That's now we're going to go through hard times. Look, please understand. You've got Christians who were beheaded. I'm just now talking about the Christians thrown in the Limont River, like those who are losing. So this is not to say it's the absence of death. But again, that's a far cry from what the Bible describes as the wrath of God being poured out on yeah. mankind. Be encouraged. Occupy until he returns. Until tomorrow, Lord willing. God bless. <laughs>